0: Come to you today, just like Jamie and so many others, we are looking for hope, we're looking for answers, we're looking for some guidance, some wisdom, some inspiration, and God, I just pray that you would give us that today. As we dive into your word and talk about where it comes from and and, and how to use it, how we admit, humble ourselves that it's a complicated tool, God, will you just guide our conversation? Would you help us? Uh, to understand it better so that we can know you better. And God, when we leave here today, we walk out of here with a better sense of what it looks like to love God, to love others, and to God, to ultimately learn how to love myself. In your name we pray, amen. You guys can be seated. I got a question for you. What comes to mind when you think of the word compass? You know, several of you, you probably don't have a compass. You know, I mean, it's a little old school. Some of you may. But, you know, we all have a compass on our phone. There's actually an app that comes with it. It's pretty cool. Uh, But, you know, a compass is simply a tool to help you know where you're going. You know, it's something we use to help us get where we want to be. It's very simple. And the thing is, is that in life, don't we all need tools like that? You know, just something to help us know where we're going, help us get where we want to get. Because we all know that, you know, you don't just end up somewhere on accident. I mean, you can, but that's called wandering, okay? Uh, but you need a tool to help you know where you're going. And, it's, and the same is true of so many areas of our life, right? I mean, like financial success. Okay, you you can't just—it doesn't just happen. You don't just wander upon it. You got to be smart. You need tools, right? You need things like a budget, maybe an advisor, some kind of financial tool. Same thing with health, right? I mean, you don't just accidentally end up healthy. Although I will say, the bass player Darren Ware, my best friend, who I've known since we were teenagers, this man has been fit and healthy his entire life. This man can eat a whole pack of Oreos and still have a six-pack. Makes me disgustingly sick. So if you have wear genes, yes, you can accidentally find yourself to be healthy, but for the rest of us, all right, we need some tools. We need some help. Okay. And so, you know, you, you follow a, a nutrition plan or, you know, you get a coach or you follow a programming of some kind because you don't just accidentally end up being fit. Well, here's the thing. We believe that the Bible is our tool to help us navigate through life, to help us know where we're going, to help us get where we want to be. It's, it's, it's our tool and it's our guide to help us take next steps, to figure out decision-making things, to know what the wise thing to do is. But the thing is, is although it's a tool, let's all admit something. The Bible is a very complicated tool, isn't it? I mean, people just hand it to us and go, here it is, here's the Bible, use this, read this. But it's not as simple as that, it's a very complicated tool. I don't know about you. Some of you, you're very handy. I'm very bad with tools, like really bad with tools. Uh, when we were covering up these windows years ago, putting foam on them and stuff, uh, Darren was taking a staple gun and, and stapling the foam into this board and stuff. And he had to go. And we were, I was working with a guy. We call him Fez because he looks like Fez from that 70s show. And so Darren had to leave. And he goes, hey, I got to go here. You pick it up where I started. It's real simple. Just point and shoot. I said, yeah. Duh, I got this, right? So I take the staple gun, and I point it at the foam, and I I pull the trigger, and I felt a pinch in my stomach. And I was like, ow, that kind of hurt. I don't know what happened. Let me try it again. I did it again. I felt another pinch in my stomach. And I look at Fez, and Fez, his mouth has dropped, and he goes, you're bleeding from your stomach, Pastor And I looked down, I had stapled myself in the stomach twice and I was bleeding all over the place. I ran down to the bathroom, I was freaking out. I was like pulling staples out of my stomach. I sent a picture to my wife, I said, I'm bleeding out in the church. I need you you to call somebody now. I mean, and some of you, you sound that and you're like, you're an idiot. And you know what? Maybe there's something to that, but you know what? It's not as easy as it looks. I blame the person who handed me the staple gun. They didn't do that good of a job teaching me how to use it properly. Okay. I didn't know which end the things came out of anyway, but the Bible's a complicated tool, right? I mean, somebody just like Darren handed you this thing and said, here you go. Use it, read it, do with what you want. It's real simple. But that's not true, is it? The Bible is a very complicated tool. I mean, just when you get it in your hands, you open it up, and one thing that's very obvious is, oh, there's two parts to this thing, right? I mean, there's the Old Testament, and then there's the New Testament. There's the Old Testament that was originally written in Hebrew. There's the New Testament that was originally written in Greek. And you're like, what the deal? what's the deal with this? But here's the thing. It, they really shouldn't be called Testaments. Really, the dividing line is they're covenants or promises, agreements made between God and people. So really what it should say is there's the Old Covenant and there's the New Covenant. There's the old covenant that God made with Abraham about his descendants. We talked a little bit about that at Christmas, right? And that was all to get us to Jesus. And then we get Jesus, and then Jesus makes an agreement, not just with the descendants of Abraham, not just the Jews, but with all people. And so two totally different contracts, two totally different agreements, and that's what divides those two things up. Now, how do we get the Old Testament? The Old Testament is Jewish History That was passed on orally for years and years and years. I mean, generations by generations and generations. They didn't write stuff down. These stories were told and told and told and told. Then, when we get to Samuel, when we get to Samuel, in Jewish history, there was an unbroken succession of of Jewish prophets. And prophets were speaking on behalf of God. God gave them something to say. They would come in. Prophets like Isaiah, different prophets like Malachi... And when a prophet would come forward and speak to the people, that prophet or somebody who was listening would immediately write down what they said and it would be treated like divine text. So, I mean, as soon as it was said, there was somebody being a secretary to this thing, writing it down, and it was immediately treated as divine text, and then it was protected by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they would memorize this thing forwards and backwards. And it was passed on and passed on and passed on. That's how we get your Old Testament So yeah, we've got some stories of arcs and different things that were passed on orally. We've got some things that we know were written down that were there in law, but then we get to Jesus. Now when we get to Jesus in the new Testament or the new covenant, we have people who were with Jesus during his life and time. People like Matthew, people like Peter, people like John, men and women, and they were all there. In about 10 years after Jesus's death, uh, we find that these people start to Write down these accounts of Jesus's life. Now, I'm going to stop right there because there's something... you got to understand how incredible this is, okay? It's incredible that anyone would draw up an account about someone else's life. You have to understand that didn't happen, okay? Because here's the reason why. People didn't know how to read or write back then. There were some people, they were called scribes and patrons... Scribes would write it down. Patrons would interview and produce, okay? And so it took a lot of money. You had to be very, very rich in order to get draw up an account of your life or anybody else's life because it was a tedious, tedious, expensive process. So here's what's fascinating about that. We don't have, in the first century, we don't have a whole lot of uh, orderly accounts of anybody's life. Because if you were going to spend all that money and, do, uh, and spend all that time drawing up an account of your life, you'd probably write it about your own. But even so many people that were influential in this time, they don't, we don't have an account of their life. Take Tiberius Caesar. C- he's the Caesar at the time of Jesus's whole ministry and, and, and death and everything. Tiberius Caesar, there's no account of his life. Now we know he existed and we know he did because he's in the background of so many historical documents. We have all kinds of things like that, but we don't have an account of his life. Pilate, Pilate, who's in the background of Jesus' story, he did amazing, amazing things. But we don't have an account of his life. Now, Herod, Herod the Great... Um, he was an architect, and so there, we do have actually an account of his life. Um, he's in Jesus' story as well. Um, but there was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. He actually drew up an account of Herod's life because he thought what Herod did and the architecture that he did was so incredible that he decided to draw up an account of his life. But here's what's fascinating about that. We only have one. We have one account of Herod. Herod the Great's life. But do you know how many first generation accounts we have of poor carpenters from from the middle of Judea uh, who turned into rabbis? Zero. Not many at all. We don't have any. We have quotes. We have stories. But no, we don't have an account of any Jewish rabbis in the first century. But all of a sudden, this rabbi by the name of Jesus, we have four, four orderly accounts of Jesus's life, not just one but four. Let me tell you, in the first century, there is nobody who has multiple accounts written of their life. It's incredible. It's amazing. And Luke talks about this. If you open up the gospel of Luke, he says at the very beginning, he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He says, I'm not the only one. There's a lot of, I know a lot of other people who have done this, who are trying to do this. I'm not the only one. And he said, "I've decided to draw up an account of this, just as they were handed down to us by those who were, who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the of the word." Now, when he says the word, he's talking about he's talking about Jesus, and he's saying, "Look, these aren't my words, my thoughts." He's saying, "I've interviewed all these people. I talked to Mary. I talked to this guy named John. I talked to this guy named Peter. I talked to all these people who said they were there. I know they've drawn up some accounts as well. And I've gone and I've documented all of this for you." And he says. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So, Luke is not writing the Bible. Okay? There wasn't this master plan to sit down and go, we should write, you know, we should make some money off of this. Let's write a book. Let's, let's, let's write the Bible. He, this man, Theophilus, he must have had a lot of money because he he paid and, and uh, hired Luke to write this and do this whole investigation. So he says, hey, many have done this. I've investigated this very thoroughly. This is my report to you, Theophilus. And then he says, and I've written this so that. And this, this next part Is so very important. I hope this is a game changer for somebody in here. Because then he explains why he's decided to draw up an account for this. And what this means to him. He says, I've written all of this down for you, Theophilus. So that, and then he says, you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. He says, I'm writing this down so that you may know for certain. You want to know what happened. You want to know who this Jesus is. I've investigated it. I have wrote times. I wrote places. I wrote things in history. So that you could go back. And you could check all my work. Because I want you to know for certainty. I don't know what your church background is. I grew up in church. But I remember when I was growing up in church. And I came to Sunday school. And I came to church. There was a lot of just reading from this thing. And then we'd close the book. And they'd go, well, that's it. And I'm like, I have questions. I have questions. I don't understand. Like, uh, what 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 was that about? And blah blah. blah. Oh well, it's uh, well, well. I think it's I think it's pretty clear. You see, the Bible says. The Bible says, the Bible says, you ever remember hearing that as a kid or the pastor always saying that? Well, the Bible says, why should I do that? Because the Bible says, you ever ask your mama or your daddy something? Why? why am I? Well, because the Bible says, right? And that was it. Well, what, what does that mean to me? It's because it's the Bible, right? Well, I have questions. Well, what about this? Well, you just need to have more faith. Right? You just need to have more faith, brother. You just need to take it by faith. And for some of you, that's why it was so easy for you to walk away from your faith. Because you read a lot of stories with very little context. Very little about this was explained to you. It was just handed to you like a staple gun. And you started blasting it all over the place. Sometimes you hit yourself in the eye. And you didn't understand this thing. And nobody would answer your questions about it. Have you ever noticed, by the way, if you stick around here long enough, have you ever noticed, never, ever, ever in my sermon will I ever say the Bible says? There's a reason for that. We'll get to that in a little bit. But the thing is, is that this was handed to you and you were just told, take it by faith. But here's the thing. The authors of this stuff, the authors of the gospel and Jesus' story, never intended for you to just take it by faith. Just take it, believe it, and shut your mouth. That's not what they said. Luke says, I have investigated all of this so that you may know. I've investigated this for you to have proof, for you to have facts. I want you to know this is not some kind of story that's made up. This really happened, and I want you to have the proof. Now, here's the question, though. Not just one, but four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was there. John was there. Mark got his from Peter. Luke, he did this whole investigation and talked to all these people. What compelled these four men to write down not just one, but four separate accounts on their own about the life of this rabbi Jesus who died after three years of knowing him? What in the world? Why would they do this? There wasn't anything in it for them. Actually, they would all be killed. Every single one of them would die because of this. They didn't profit from it. There was no money to make. It was expensive for them. What compelled these four men to even go down this road? And that's the question. Why? Why? And the answer to this question is because because they saw something It's because of something they experienced, something they saw with their own eyes that they said, oh, my goodness, we have to tell this story. We have to tell it. And 10 years after telling the story, they said, oh, my goodness, you know what? I think we're about to die. I think our life is about to be taken. We need to write this down. This has to be protected. What do you think that that event was? What do you think it was that they saw that so compelled them to write it down? Many of you, you'd probably think it was the cross. It was not the cross. The cross was the end. You have to understand, Jesus on the cross, they didn't understand what it meant. And when Jesus died on the cross, they all went home and they said, well, game over. I guess he's not God. We just watched him bleed to death. No, they all went home. Game over. Christianity was dead. If nothing else happened after that time, we would never even have a Bible. Nothing. It was all game over. They all went home and they all gave up. But then after the cross, they saw something. And Luke, at the end of his gospel, he writes it down. And this is what he said that they saw. He said, while they were still talking about this, while they were still all gathered together and talking about Jesus and his death, all of a sudden, Jesus himself himself walks in and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And they all pooped their pants. Think about it for a minute, okay? Think about it. You just watched your best friend die on a cross and you're all gathered together. You're drinking coffee, you're eating and you're talking about it. You're like, what are we going to do now? Jesus died, we're probably next. What in the world do we do? And then all of a sudden he just walks in, peace be with you. And you're like, ah, right? I mean, that would be terrifying. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what it says. They were all startled and frightened. That's that's Bible for I pooped myself, okay? They were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost, Because they thought he was dead. And he said this, he said to them, why are you so troubled? Why have you pooped yourself? (laughs) Why are you so troubled? And why why do doubts, don't make me laugh. I'm going to cough so bad. Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, it is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as, as you see I have. He stood in front of him. He said, look, I'm right here. Touch me. You see, that was the thing. And it says next, it says this. It says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet and they touched him. They said, oh my gosh, it really is you. They saw their friend. They saw their savior. They saw their rabbi, their teacher alive in front of them. Still with the scars, still with the holes in his hands and feet. And there he was alive in front of them. And then they went, oh, that's right. He told us this was going to happen. And he told us three days later he was going to rise again. But we were such morons. We went and ran scared. And what day is it? It's been three days. And all of a sudden, everything clicked. All of a sudden, they were all in. All of a sudden, they were full of faith. All of a sudden, they were followers of Jesus. Not like they were before, but now they were sold out. They were all in. They were diehards. And Jesus ascends into heaven. And they go out and they start to tell the story. And again, the first generation church, the first Christians, they didn't have a whole lot to go on. All they had was the teachings of Jesus and what they knew of Jesus. All they had, they started to write down the gospels. They started to write down the stories. Matthew wrote his account, which Matthew, it makes sense. He was a tax collector. He had tons of money. He had scribes on his payroll. That's an easy one. Mark and Peter, they they do their thing. John, he writes his at the end of his life. And for 300 to 400 years, all they have are the stories of Jesus. All they have is the gospel. Some people have Matthew, some people have Mark, some people have Luke, but there is no Bible. But they have enough to go off of. All they have to go off of, all they know is this. This is Christianity 101. Jesus came because God loves us. Jesus is the explanation of what God is like. Jesus' command is to love God and love others. Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection, so you should follow Jesus. That's them. That's all they had to go off of. But here's what I want you to understand. This this generated tens of thousands of followers of Jesus. This is where the church starts to explode. And when I say church, I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about the collective body. I'm talking about the followers of Jesus. It starts to take off. But why? They don't have a Bible yet. This is very important. And again, if you go tell your Baptist or Catholic grandmother this, this afternoon, she's really going to hate this. Okay. But many of us in this country, in this day and age, we believe that the foundation of our faith is the Bible. We, we hold this and we're like, man, this is it. This is the foundation of our faith. We need this thing taught in schools is what we need, but here's what you have to understand. This is not the foundation of our faith. For hundreds and hundreds of years, for three centuries, there's no Bible. So, what is it? What is inspiring this movement? What is making this thing happen? Here's what you need to understand as a follower of Jesus. The foundation of our faith is the resurrection. It's not the Bible. Because here's the thing, and here's a great way to put it the, the Bible doesn't make the resurrection true. The resurrection is the only reason we have a Bible. Don't get this out of order. okay? Don't, don't get this out of order and try to use this as the weapon that it's not intended to be used for. This is not the foundation of our faith. This is great. This is a compass. This is a tool. But it's not the reason we're gathered here today together. It's not the reason we're Christian. And here's the thing. When somebody wants to flip this open and debate whether there was two kinds of animals on the ark or, you know, how many days it really rained or any of that kind of stuff, Who cares? That's not the foundation of our faith. I don't care if you think four of every kind of animal went on the ark. The foundation of our faith is the resurrection. That I'll fight you on. (laughs) If you're like, I don't think Jesus really raised from the dead. I'll be like, boy, okay, here we go. Okay, that's a whole different thing. But the foundation of our faith, it is not in the Bible. It is Jesus. It's our relationship with him. And here's the thing. For centuries, for three centuries, hundreds of years, it was enough. That alone was enough. The basics, the fundamentals of Christianity, that was enough. It was enough for them to inform their conscience. It was enough to inspire their faith. And it was enough to instill values and literally reshape the world, completely reshaped the entire continent of Europe. So now, as time goes on, 2nd century comes into play. Paul starts writing letters. James writes letters. Peter, John, they write some different letters. 1st John, 2nd John, 1st Peter, 2nd Peter. They're writing letters. And again, these are starting to circulate. They're starting to be copied. So now people have maybe Matthew and a letter from Peter. Maybe they got the gospel of John and a couple letters from Paul because they met Paul. I mean, there's all of this kind of stuff that's starting to circulate. Meanwhile, the Jews are, have lost their mind. They don't know what to do with themselves. Because if you go back to the predictions of Jesus, not only did Jesus predict his death and resurrection, he also predicted that 40 years after his death that the temple would be destroyed. Because he said, oh yeah, he said, boys, we're not going to need that anymore. Yeah, it's not about going to the holy place and meeting with the holy pastor and doing this whole thing and doing, yeah, I'm, I'm done with that. That's the old. The new is, is I'm going to have a personal relationship with you and I'm going to live in your heart. And you don't need to go through a priest and you don't need to go through a special, special place. I'm going to let that be destroyed. And they said, yeah, sure you are. And then you know what happened? 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, temple goes down. No temple. All the priests are killed. And so now, what did the Jews do? They have no clue what to do. We have no temple. We have no priests. What do we do? And they did not like the Gentiles. Remember, they killed Jesus and they did not like the Christians because they considered them to be terrorists. That they were trying to destroy the ways of God. Because the the temple and the law and the Ten Commandments, that was God's way. But it was being replaced. And so they didn't, like the, they didn't like the Christians, but the Christians, remember, they had a moral code. Love God and love others, even if they're your enemy. So the Gentiles, the Christians, they come along, the Jews, and they go, I know you hate us, but we love you. We'll take you. Come here. I know you don't know what to do. I know your temple's destroyed and your priests are gone. It's okay. We love you. We'll take you in. So they take them in, and they look at the Jews, and they go, can we see your text? <laughs> Sorry, that was me whispering to Jew, Jewish person's ear. Can I see your text? They go, can we, can we look at your text? We don't want your religion. We do not want your religion. That's gone. But we would like to see your text that you have. So they shared with them the old Testament and the Gentiles, the Christians, they went through it and they completely saw it differently than the Jews. They flipped through it and they said, oh my goodness, this all points to Jesus. All of these prophets, Isaiah, everything that God said to Abraham, this was all getting us to Jesus. They said, we would like to take your text now. And the Jews said, no, you can't have it. And they relented, but they eventually gave it, gave it up. And so now, now the Christians had the Old Testament, the Holy Scriptures. They had the, the old story, the old covenant. And then they had all these different pieces. Now, for years, Christians are being persecuted. 303, Emperor Di- Diocletian of the Roman Empire. He decides, he makes an edict that all church property and texts should be destroyed because now Christianity is blowing up and they don't know what to do. They can't destroy it because they don't have any churches. They don't have any buildings. What can you take from them? Well, they keep running around and they are holding on tight to this text. For some reason, these stories, these letters, these historical documents, they treat them as so important. So Emperor Diocletian goes, you know what? Take them all. And let's burn it. This goes on for years. And then Diocletian, he decides to retire. And Constantine steps up. And Constantine actually decides to make Christianity legal. There's a lot of debate about Constantine. He says this story of how he saw something in the sky and he decided to be a Christian. A lot of people think it was a political, it was a political move that he just read the writing on the wall and he's like, man, if I wanted to be popular, I should probably just say I'm Christian and make the, let the Christians, I'm going to relent, let them do what they want. I'll probably be a pretty popular guy. He was right either way. And so he makes Christianity legal and, and, and reverses everything that Diocletian had said. So now for the first time, Time in history. Now remember, we're, we're at about 331 now. Go to that next one. We're at 331 after AD. 331, this is year, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after Jesus. Constantine, he lets all the Christians come out of hiding. And they all come out and they all have this text. And they go, hey, I got I got Matthew and some letters. What do you got? Well, we got Luke and we got some letters. Well, I got John. And for the first time, they were able to collect them all together. And at the Edict of Milan, they put this text together. Christianity was made legal. And they were able to, the first time, piece together what would be known as the Bible. And then Constantine had had 50 state uh, priests who would be speakers and, and teachers of, of, this, of this Christian text. And so he ordered 50 copies be made. It was the first 50 Bibles that were ever copied and made for, to be used at a state level for state priests to be able to teach. So then, now, people could have churches and, and different stuff and things started to take off. But you know what? It would still not be until 1455 that the first Bibles are ever printed. Not till 1455 were the first Bibles even ever printed. Now catching up to today. Now you can get a Bible anywhere. You got a Bible on your phone, you get a Bible on Amazon, you get a Bible sent to you by 10 a.m. tomorrow morning, right? And now there's 3,658 translations of the Bible, which is why it's a bit complicated, right? You're like, hey, I'd like to read the Bible, But there's a lot of them, apparently. Which one do I even use? And that's a common question I get asked. Which translation do I even use? And that's a great question. Uh, Many of you, you probably know the the King James Version, right? Or New King James Version. King James Version was issued by King James. He wanted an English Bible. He issued it in 1604. It was completed and published by 1611. Uh, King James is very old school, right? Right? Again, probably your grandmother's favorite version, okay? But then the NIV... The NIV, uh, which is what we use every single week. So if you come here and everything you see on here, you'll see a little NIV in the corner. That's what we use, right? New International Version is what it's called. It was published in 1978. It's been revised two times. It was uh, revised in 1984 and 2011. But very, very easy to read. And I, and I want to show you the difference between some of these, okay? So let, 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 let's read the same verse in a couple different ways. This is going to be fun. Okay? Let's read the King James. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much more better than they? That's King James, okay? So, a little old school, right? Now, NIV. Let's read some NIV. This is what we read every week, right? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father... Feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Right? Very, e- very easy to understand. Not too complicated. Um, another great version is NLT. New Living Translation. Um, another popular one is called The Message. Now, The Message is unique because it's a paraphrase means it doesn't go word by word, verse by verse. Every single week when I write you a message, I will go look at the NIV and then I will go look at that English word and how it was translated from a Greek word and I will try to interpret it and understand it better. Can't do that with the message because it's a paraphrase. Even if you get a message book, it's just big chunks of scripture. They don't go verse by verse. This is what the message sounds like. Same verse that we just read, okay? Uh, Look at the birds, free and unfettered. Not tied down to a job description, careless in the care of God, and you count far more to Him than birds. Pretty self explanatory, right? Pretty easy. Now, this is just for funsies. I have this TikTok I follow called the Gen Z Bible. Let's read the same verse in the Gen Z Bible for the kids in the room, okay? Look up, bro. <laughs> these birds be chirping, but can't do nothing. But they slay because of daddy God. Yeet. So don't be tripping. We got more cred than these. No cap. <laughs> You're going to kill me. There, there is a Gen Z Bible you can order on Amazon, but I, I highly advise against it. All right. When my daughter starts talking like this, I'm like, I don't know what you're drinking, but stop it. All right. So don't, you do not want them learning scripture like that anyway. But so there's a lot of different versions, right? My Bible, this one right here, this is my personal Bible. It's an NIV. It's called the Jesus Bible. Uh, one of our teenagers, Carter, he just texted me last night. He's like, Hey, I want a new Bible. What would you recommend? This is what I would recommend. It's called the Jesus Bible. It's NIV, but every single, uh, thing that it says, uh, at the bottom here, it it points it to Jesus. So if Jesus said, "Ah, that's not the most important thing, or if Jesus said that and also agreed with it, Jesus also taught that points everything to Jesus, which is what we're all about. Right? So that's what I read, but all that explained right now, look, I don't always go on a big history lesson, but this is for part one of this series. Okay. But you got to understand the context. Okay. And again, I, I don't think anybody ever explained to you how this thing got put together. And I don't think everybody, anybody explained to you that the foundation of our faith is the resurrection in Jesus, not the Bible. So I want you to understand the context of all of this. But the question still remains, why read it? Why read it at all then? If this is just a bunch of historical documents, a bunch of letters and different stuff, that was, some of it was just handed down orally, then, then why does it even matter? Well, I feel like the answer is found in something that Paul said. Paul, he was a Pharisee, teacher of the law, knew the Old Testament forwards and backwards. And even him himself, it's amazing, he knew the Old Testament forwards and backwards. But yet, for a long time, he thought it was the ethical thing to do was to hunt Christians and to to, to put them to death and to wrongly persecute them. But then he has an encounter with Jesus. And, and, and again, this is why Jesus is the foundation of our faith, not the Bible, because Paul got it wrong with just the Bible. But it wasn't until he met Jesus and he f- became a follower of Jesus and had experience with Jesus that then he understood and was able to piece it together all correctly. And so he becomes a Christian. His name was Saul. He becomes Paul. He becomes a Christian. And he has this, this I guess, uh, intern, I would call him. Good friend, Timothy. He would go around and do all these things with, and he writes them two letters because he's teaching them in the ways. We have 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And in his second letter, there's something that he says to Timothy that I want to read to you. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, again, when Paul is writing this, he is not writing the Bible. He doesn't know he's writing the Bible. Okay? This is a text message between two friends is all this is. Okay? Paul sends them a text and he says, hey, I want you to know all scripture is God breathe. I hate when pastors misuse this verse and go, that's right. Everything in here is God breathe, and that's the way you're supposed to do it. Please, there's way too much counter stuff in here. It's not that simple. It's more of a complicated tool than that. What he's saying, though, and what he's trying to help Timothy understand is he's referring to the Old Testament. And he's trying to help him understand. He says in the verse before, if you read it, verse 15, he says, these holy scriptures are still valid. There's a reason they're valid because God is in them. Not everything is applicable, but God is in them. And here he says they're God-breathed, which means they're God-inspired. They're from God. All of these things that were written are, are to inspire, to help us, to guide us. They're a compass. Now, here's the thing. Paul wouldn't have said this about his own text, but then when people found these letters, they said, Paul, not only is the Old Testament Holy Scripture a compass, But also your words, what you wrote down, they were inspired by God. They are also a part of this compass. They are there to to teach us because we don't think that you just made this up, Paul. These aren't just your words. These are inspired by God. It's the same as my messages. You know, I I know I I have several friends that I text with. I know some of you think that on Mondays when I write my sermons, I just sit at home and I go, okay, who am I going to get this week? Let me see. Let me go look at Janet's Facebook page. Oh yeah, I'm gonna get her good this week. All right, let me write a message to get her good. You know, that's not what I do, okay? When I sit down, it's the weirdest thing in the world, I can't even explain it to you. But when I sit down and I write these messages and I plan these sermons out, look, these are not my words. I'm I'm not I'm not the, the key to any of this, okay? I I sit down and I I think about what you're going through. I think about what's going on in our world. Half the time I'm preaching to myself and I think about what I'm going through. And I look through the text. I look for the text for inspiration. I look to the text for understanding and wisdom and what I should do or how I should handle this. The thing is, is that it comes from here. These messages are God-inspired. And the thing is that Paul was trying to say is he was saying this text. And many people later would say, your text included, Paul. It's there to inspire us. It's it's from God. It's there to help us course correct. It's there to help us uh, train up in who we're trying to be. It's there to help us be in right relationship with God and right relationship with other people. See, the thing you got to understand is the reason we read the Bible is because God is in it. That's the reason we read it is because God is in it all the way from the old to the end of the new. We read it because God is in it, speaking through it, trying to inspire us. And these 66 books, some of it history, some of it poems, some of it songs, some of it letters. It's there to inform your faith, to inspire your conscience and to instill your values, and I see it all the time i i, I can 't tell you how many married people have come into our church, and they nobody knew, but they were they were at the point of almost no return. They were this close to getting a divorce. And then they come in here and we're in a message and we're talking about relationships. We're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about, you know, we always talk around here about how marriage is a submission competition. That's not, that's my way of interpreting something that Paul wrote. But so many couples have come in here and they've heard a word from this. And they've said, man, when we heard that message, when, we, when you preach that one sermon with that one text and we understood it and we applied it to our lives, let me tell you something, Pastor. It saved our marriage. It saved our life. All around this room, all around this room, there are foster parents. There are people who have adopted. Tons of you guys. Tons of foster kids back in our children's department right now. Guess what? There, there's no verse in here that says you should foster kids. But many of you, you have felt led over years and years, you have felt led to, to step into a child's life and to either foster or foster and adopt, not because it was feasible, not because it was easy by any means, not because you're like, I'm bored, I think I'll do something. It's because you took this text, you took the command of love God and love others, and you thought, what better way could I truly be selfless and be like Christ and put myself forward into somebody else than to foster and to adopt? And you've done that. Not because of me, not because of this place, but because of what you've been inspired by in here. I had a a friend come for the first time during Christmas. And I saw her a few days later and she said, man, I didn't know church could feel like that. When I left, I was on cloud nine. It was great. I can't wait to come back next week. Why? Not because of me. Not because of this church. All we did was read the Christmas story. Probably nothing new to anybody else. But because when applied properly, when understood, this could help you feel like you're on cloud nine. This could inspire you. This can lift you up. This can get you out of a hole that you feel like you're in sometimes. I had another friend, somebody who's come the last few months, gave me a Christmas card one night after CrossFit. I had no clue it was coming. Sat in my car and cried. It was just a Christmas card, but I opened it up. Said, Dear Mike, I can't thank you enough. Ever since I started attending the church, it has helped me so much. I've been really, really struggling lately. And hearing God speak through these messages has meant something to me. Sometimes it's not what I want to hear. It's really hard to hear. But I hear it. And I need it. I mean like I know I really need it. And I can't even begin to describe. How much this has helped me through a season of pain that I've been in. But the growth I'm experiencing in my life. You and that church have truly been a blessing. Thank you so much for everything and Merry Christmas. But you see, here's the thing. What they've experienced, it's not because of me. It's not because of this church. It's not because of this organization. It's because of what is being shared from here. See, this is simple as it is in a weird, supernatural way has the ability to give the hopeless hope, has the ability to inspire you to be the best version of yourself you could ever be, has the ability to heal your relationships, has the ability to give you the capacity to do things you never thought you could do on your own. Many of you have experienced that. None of you thought you could ever be foster parents or adopt. None of you ever thought you could be leaders. Never, no, some of you never thought you could do what you're doing now. But you've been led there. Through God, by the messages that God has sent you through this text. So one last question before we wrap up. With all that said, how often do you read it? Let's be real honest. Most of you are like, not very often. That's why I come see you every Sunday. So you can read it to me. But here's the thing. 50-ish times a year, I will preach from this and read this text to you. But there is so much more for you in here than what I have for you. This is yours. God, remember, Jesus, his his covenant was no more temples, no more priests. Yeah, I'm going to use pastors and I'm going to use people to lead you and stuff. But no, 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 no. This is, I'm going to, give this to you. I want to have a personal relationship. You don't need somebody to pray on your behalf anymore. You, you can talk to me now. You don't need to go to a booth for that. You, you can come to me directly. And I want to have that with you. God wants that time with you. So my, my prayer for you, as we unpack this the next four weeks, now you know the, con, the, 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 the history, you know the, the, where it comes from. But I I have three things I want to ask that you'll do this next month. The first thing is this. Pick a time. Pick a time and read it. And and, and again, it it could be a physical Bible. It could be all your phones. Go look up the YouVersion Bible app. You put in Bible app. It'll be the first one that comes up. Great, great app. They have reading plans. They'll send you notifications. You can take notes. You can share it with a friend. You guys can even read it together. Get an accountability partner read it together. But read it. And if you you just pick this up and you just flip it open and you want to read it, don't start at the beginning. The beginning is not Genesis. The beginning is Jesus. Start at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read a gospel. Read the life of Jesus. For centuries, that's all people had and it was enough. But read it. Pick a time and read it. And the second thing is be consistent and ask questions. Look, this is a complicated tool. Be consistent and ask questions. That's why we have small groups. Get in a small group. We'd love to see you get in a small group. Get in a small group. All we do is unpack what we just talked about that Sunday before. Call me, DM me, text me. I will literally go. You buy me coffee, I'll stay a lot longer than 30 minutes, okay? And, and we can talk about this. I will answer all your questions. Because here's the thing. I don't want you to staple yourself in the stomach, guys, okay? I've done it. It's not fun. I bled right there, okay? Don't do that, all right? But answer questions. And the last thing is this. The other thing is ask God to inspire you. As you sit down, the same as when I sit down with this text and I write these messages, sit down and say, God, what do you want to say to me? God, what is your will for my life? What do you want to say? And I believe, and so many other people could testify in this room, that it would make a difference in your life. That time in this text, using this tool, using this compass, it will help you and guide you to who you want to be and where you want to go. Now, next week, I want you to come back. Because while all of this is inspired by God, not all of this is applicable to you. And I want you to help you understand that. And specifically, if you're a person like me, and you have tattoos, and you've had that grandmother call you and tell you that there's a verse in here that tells you you ain't supposed to have tattoos, I'm going to light your grandma up next week. So, I hope you come back next week for that one. And you can share it with her online later. But, in the meantime, I'm going to be praying for you as you begin this journey. Let me pray for you. Father God, as we come to you today, would you inspire us through your text. God, these are your words. We believe that you are in this. It's a complicated tool and we haven't always been taught how to use it properly. But God, would you help us to find you in it? Would you help us to go through the text and be inspired by you? Would you help us to have the wisdom to navigate through it? And would it make a difference in our lives? Would we learn how to love you how to love others, and also, God, how to love ourselves. In your name we pray, amen. We're gonna sing one last song together.